This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett talks about the devil's confusion in the Gospels. Does the darkness shine through light? How does the light spread? What does Jesus mean when he answered Pilate with, I am? Well, let's find out. Ken Billinger begins the interview. We're going to talk a little bit today about Satan's confusion in the Gospels, and I know you have a lot to talk about here, and, and I'm going to basically let you run with it, and just great to have you with us. So share with us a little bit about uh, Satan's confusion in the Gospels, if you would. Well, what happened was, was um, some time ago, I was going through, when you, when you look at the, at the prologue in the Gospel of St. John, which is basically um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In fact, in the old days, from what I understand, I never experienced this myself, but from what I understand, back in the, in the days before Vatican II, um, there were laminated cards in pews in a lot of parishes. And at the end of Mass, like, you know, like sometimes, you know, sometimes you'll have like a prayer for vocations or the prayer of St. Michael or something like that. People would actually, you know, together pray the prologue from, from John 1, 1 to 18. And, um, you know, everybody's pretty much familiar with part of it. Um, the, the first five verses, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through Him, and without Him none one thing came into being. What came into being in Him was life, and life was the light of all people. Now, verse 5, this is the one that's interesting. The light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And what the deal was, I was studying Greek a while back, and I was looking at, I was at the, um, the prologue in Greek, and when you read it in Greek, the direct translation, I mean, it, it's kind of sad how these, sanit- these, these translations all kind of get sanitized. I don't know why they don't just translate what's there. Because in Greek, verse 5 is literally translated as, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness was confused by it. And, and I thought, you know, that really just kind of sheds a whole, I mean, if, if you go through the Gospel of St. John, with this idea of the darkness being confused, it just really opens the whole thing up. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of starting to write a book about it, and I will see how far I get with it. I've got to kind of get my thoughts organized with it and everything. There, there's another one, too. I'll just, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, and we'll kind of go back to the main point. As you go on further in the prologue, um, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And some say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, again, you know, somewhere along the line, the translator, you know, made an interpretation there, because the in Greek the actual word is they they take the word for tent or tabernacle, you know, a kind of an abode, a, like a little shelter, and they make it into a verb, and so um, literally in Greek it says, and the word became flesh and tented among us or tabernacled among us, and so again, it, you know, some some translations I've seen say, and the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, which which is great. I mean, that's a it's a beautiful kind of prosaic way of describing the. The, the, the incarnation. And so um, I just always thought it was kind of unfortunate that we have these, these sanitized translations. But getting back to the, the idea that the light shines on in the darkness and the darkness was, was confused by it. The darkness was confounded by it. If you go through the entire Gospel of St. John, John loves toying with and kind of playing with this idea of light and darkness and what it means. Darkness just doesn't mean a lack of photons. In the Gospel of St. John, Darkness means 
sin, disease, betrayal, ignorance, things like that. Light means life, fidelity, you know, virtue, goodness. And so what John is saying is that, you know, there's this battle going on between these two forces, which he labels light and darkness. You could call it good and evil. You call it virtue and vice. You know, you could call it knowledge and ignorance, whatever. But John just lumps all under, under light and darkness. And so the deal is then, is that what you're, you know, if you think about this, the, you're, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus shows up. And if you imagine a, you know, like, like, a, like, a, like a gigantic, like a big auditorium, a gymnasium or a, a field house or something like that, and, um, and all the lights are shut off and it's just pitch black, you know, and you can't see your hand in front of you. And then someone, you know, lights a big lighter or they, you know, they, they, they turn on the light on their phone or they light a candle or something like that. And, and so, you know, kind of what, you, what you're sort of, you know, the image you're left with is, is there's this overwhelming darkness, but in the middle of it, there's this little bit of light. And immediately around the light, you can see one or two far away from the light and you can't see. And I think that this is the, the image that the church has tried to um, perpetuate over the years at the Easter Vigil, where we begin in a darkened church, and then we light the Easter candle. And immediately around the candle, there's light. Every place out, outside of the way from the candle, it's dark. But the whole thing being is that Jesus, you know, is, he calls himself, I am the light of the world. While I, am, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus comes in, and, he's the, and there's light, and the darkness is going what the heck is this? You know, this is our realm. This is our kingdom. This is our bailiwick. This is where we do our stuff. What's this light? And the, the darkness, forces of evil, the demons, are kind of going, where'd this come from? It's con- they're confused. The light came into the darkness, and the darkness was confounded by it. And, you know, when you, when you go through the Gospel of St. John, you kind of see it's like, and then also this works with the rest of the Gospels as well, but we'll just stick with John. When you go through the Gospel of St. John, the darkness is kind of going, well, okay, you know, something showed up here, but, you know, we'll be back to business as usual before too long. You know, we just, just let it go. It'll be, it'll be all right. You know, we're still in charge. And so as you go through the Gospel of St. John, you have these clashes between the light and the darkness. And so then as the Gospel unfolds, it starts becoming clearer and clearer that oh, the light's not going anywhere. In fact, the light is directly drawing, you know, it's drawing a line in the sand and challenging the darkness. And as the challenge gets more and more kind of in your face to the dark, to the demons, they start pushing back and they start pushing back in a big way. And one of the ways that we see this, the manifestation of these demons pushing back is when you, when you see the hysteria that develops in the opponents of Jesus. At first, so you know, the demons are kind of going, okay, you know, if he wants to turn water into wine, let him. If he wants to multiply loaves and fish, let him. We don't care. But then Jesus starts doing things that starts encroaching on the territory of the demons. He heals the sick. And the demons are going, wait a minute, sickness, that's, that's, our, that's our, you know, area. That's what we specialize in. You know, we're the purveyors of disease. Um, if someone's going to come in and start curing the sick, that's a direct challenge to us. And then, so, when, you know, for example, when Jesus, you know, heals the, you know, gives sight back to the man born blind, or um, again, when, when he heals the, the sick man, you tell him, you know, pick up your mat and walk. When he does that, you know, you might notice, like, you look at the Sanhedrin and the story of the man born blind, they just go crazy. 
because they're the idea of you know well, you know he healed him on the Sabbath you know how dare he or you know when when Jesus you know cures the paralytic he walks up and he's carrying his mat and people are, hey it's a Sabbath you're not allowed to carry that mat around it's just like the man was paralyzed and he's walking don't you think you would have a more reasonable question than that like weren't you didn't I just see you paralyzed when I came into the temple you were begging. Ten minutes ago, and now you're walking. You know what's going on here. But when you see the response that people have to Jesus, again encroaching on the territory of the darkness, you know, really moving in, you know, behind enemy lines, the hysterical response they give to this just really shows that you know now the light came into the into the darkness, and the darkness was confused by it. Now the darkness is pushing back, and it's pushing back big time. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the direction I'm going with this. Well, again, like I said, the, the whole thing, you know, is based on, if you just tuned in, the whole discussion today is based on an interpretation of the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, verse 5. And, um, and in that, in the, in the beautiful prologue of St. John, you know, many of the translations, and in fact, it's interesting, I even looked up like the Spanish and the Italian and the French translations of this, and they all basically say the same thing. The light came into the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. You know, or the darkness was, was unable to defeat it or something like that. But that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says the light came into the darkness and the darkness was confused by it. The darkness was confounded by it. And, um, and again, I, I, you know, the insight that I have, and I don't know, I suppose if there's an expert on the Gospel of St. John out there, if you want to call in and set me straight, go right ahead. But um, I think that you know, the, 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 the insight that it kind of gave me is to, you know, this, this is the beginning of the drawing of the battle lines, between light, which is Christ, and darkness, which is Satan. This battle is going to rage throughout the entire Gospel of St. John. And so, again, as long as Jesus is doing little harmless miracles, like changing water into wine and you know, multiplying loaves and fish, the demons don't really care. But then when Jesus starts encroaching on the territory of the demons, of ignorance, of disease, of sin, of death, you know, then they start ramping up their game and pushing back, and they start putting, you know, then the, the, more he goes, the more he goes into enemy territory, the more they push back. And so, again, we saw how with the healing of the paralytic and, and with the healing of the man born blind, you know, the, the, the Sanhedrin, you know, the opponents of Jesus just go ballistic on this. Um, and, again, I think the reason why is because the forces of evil are going, man, this, this guy isn't going to go away. You know, not only is he sticking around, not only is the light sticking around, but people are starting to listen to the light. And when people listen to the light, the light becomes brighter. And again, this is acted out in the Easter Vigil when everybody has their little candles. They get a light. They light their candle off the Easter candle. And again, if anybody's ever been to the Easter Vigil, hopefully everybody has, it's really quite a, quite a dramatic thing that when the church starts off being dark and then the Easter candle comes in the in the back and... You know, the, the priest holds the, the candle up and, you know, Christ, our light, and everybody responds, thanks be to God. And then they take their, their candles and get a light off the candle. And then by the time, the, you know, we do that three times and work our way to the front of the church, by the time everybody has their candle lit, the church is actually fairly well lit. And then, see, that, that's the image I think that John wants to get across, because as, you know, a lot of times after Jesus makes a speech or does a miracle or whatever, it says, because of this, like, for example, with the case of the Samaritan woman at the well, it says, you know, many began to believe in him. Or, again, at the end of the story of the changing water into wine, that when, you know, the disciples saw this and began to believe in him. Or, you know, when Jesus takes on the Pharisees and stuff, and, 
and you know he'll he'll you know have some kind of a speech or you know make some kind of an oration and then and people you know because Jesus spoke in this way many people began to believe in him. Well, again, that's the light catching light and spreading out by the belief of other people and the darkness. You know the powers of Satan are going no. This has been our kingdom for a long, long time, and we're not giving it up without a fight. And so, again, we saw how with, when Jesus you know, cures those two people, we see that manifested in the hostility that, that, that is shown to him by the, by the Sanhedrin and the, the temple leadership of the day. Um, as we go on then, when you, know, when, when you see, for example, when um, Jesus, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, when you go and you look at the various signs, because that's what they're called, in the Gospel of St. John, you have the prologue, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Then chapter 19 through John chapter um, 12 is what's called the book of signs. And that's where you know, Jesus does seven signs. They don't call them miracles in the Gospel of St. John. They call them signs. And so you have the changing water into wine, healing of the synagogue officials, son, you know, the one that's sick, healing the paralytic, the raising of Lazarus is the big one the multiplication of loaves and fish, all those various things that Jesus does in the Gospel of St. John, they're called signs. And so as we go through this book of signs, it's possible for someone to go, well, you know, yeah, I heard about that thing at the wedding, but, you know, they just had some more wine, they just brought it in. Or, you know, like when, when Jesus heals the synagogue official's um, child, the guy comes up to Jesus and says, you know, please come over and heal my son. And Jesus says, well, your son's going to live. And the guy turns around and goes back, goes back home. And it's about a day's walk. And so as he's getting back, he's met by his servants. And they say, hey, the fever broke yesterday. Your son's going to live. When did the fever break? About two in the afternoon. And the man realizes that's the same time Jesus told him your son would live. Well, the skeptic could look at that and say, fevers break all the time. That was no miracle. And so, you know, with the story of the multiplication of loaves and fish, you know, many Protestant scripture scholars over the years, especially since the, the day of the days of the endarkenment, which some people call the Enlightenment, were saying, no, you know, any, you know only simpletons believe in miracles. There, there's a rational explanation for this. And, you know, Jesus didn't multiply loaves and fish. What he did was he made people feel, and that's always the operative word, feel like they were a part of a bigger community, and then everybody shared what they had. And when everybody shares what they have, there's more than enough to go around for everyone, which is a nice little socialist manifesto there. Over and against that, if you read in Dei Verbum, which is the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation from Vatican II, which is kind of the Catholic owner's manual for the Bible, Dei Verbum says very clearly, no, if the Gospels say that Jesus you know, did something, then that's what he did. And so Dei Verbum doesn't say this, but I'm applying it. Dave Erbum would say, if the Gospels say that Jesus restored sight to a man who was born blind, then that's what he did. If the Gospels say Jesus multiplied loaves and fish, then that's what he did. If the Gospels say that Jesus you know, raised Lazarus from the dead, then that's what he did. We're not going to you know, try to make this all just some kind of metaphor or something like that. And so as we go through the, the Gospels, you know, again, you could have someone say, well, he didn't really multiply loaves and fish, you know. It was, you know, that was just kind of done, and, you know, people shared what they had and so on. Well, then the problem is, is once you get to the story of raising Lazarus from the dead, it's kind of reminiscent of the ten plagues in Egypt. You know, when you look at the plagues, the first plague of the Nile River flooding and, and you, know, you know, turning the, the river into blood, which, you know, describes the red silt that the Nile carries up every year. And so they had a really wet year that year. The Nile floods, it recedes and leaves 
pools of water all over the place where the frogs are born. Then you got this plague of frogs, and the frogs all die, and then you have the gnats and the flies, which would be the bugs eating the dead frog carcasses and so on. You know, the, the Egyptians weren't stupid. And, you know, they would see all these plagues, and if you, if you read the story of the ten plagues carefully in the book of Exodus, you can see Pharaoh and his people kind of going, well, yeah, we've seen this before, just not this bad, but Moses said it was going to happen, but it's still, eh, eh. You can see him kind of, you know, struggling with this. And so eventually, but when you get to the death of the firstborn, it's like there's no way you can explain that away. How is it that just the firstborn, from Pharaoh all the way down to the slaves, to the firstborn of the livestock, everyone, all these firstborn, except for the Israelites who had marked their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb, how is it that all these firstborn are selectively killed and the firstborn of the Israelites don't die? You know, you can't deny that, and that's why Pharaoh says, get out of here. Well, it's kind of the same thing with the resurrection, with raising of Lazarus from the dead. All these other all these other miracles, these signs that Jesus did, you know, even when Jesus restores sight to the man born blind, you know, the Sanhedrin calls his parents and was he really born blind? Maybe we don't believe this, you know. But with the story of, of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and again, that's another one. It's in John chapter 11. That's another one where the, where the translation, I don't like it that well, um, but they never ask me about this stuff. But um, whenever you get to the part where Jesus comes up to Martha and Mary and everything, Jesus says, you know, take away the stone. Then in um, verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. It says, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, depending on your translation, some translations say, Lord, he has already been dead four days. Surely there will be a stench. The, The adverbial clause in Greek is actually, Lord, he has been dead four days, and already there is a stench. Okay? And so the idea is, is that, um, and it says he's been dead four days, not, not a biblical number like three or seven or something like that, four. That means he was dead one, two, three, four days. And not embalmed, you know, they didn't have any of those, those techniques back then. He was just wrapped up and put in a cave and where nature would take its course. And so, um, you know, the, the, the people are all gathered around there. You know, they smell death. They can smell this rotting corpse in there. And so then in front of all these witnesses with the smell of death, you know, Jesus says, take away the stone, which probably sent out another, you know, wave of stench. And then you know, he says, take away the stone, Lazarus, come out. And there in front of everybody, you know, this dead man comes out. Well, now there's no denying it. You can't get around it. You can't say, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. Everybody smelled it. He was dead. And um, he was in there for four days. There were people that were there that saw him, that laid him in the tomb. Everybody was there mourning him because he was dead. Now he comes out. And so now when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, now there's hell to pay. Now the demons have really pushed back. If we read further on, a little bit further in chapter 11, it says, So the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the council. What are we to do? This man is performing so many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come destroy us, both us and our holy place. But Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Do you not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than the whole nation be destroyed? And so from that day on, they plan to put him to death. So you can see when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the darkness is no longer confused or confounded. The darkness knows exactly what's going on. The battle lines have been drawn, and now fight's going to ensue. 
in what was, when we started in chapter 13, which begins the story of the Last Supper, from there, from 13 to the end of, of, of the Gospel of St. John, that's called the Book of Glory. And so again, you have these three pieces of the Gospel of St. John. You have the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, the Book of Signs, 119 through um, chapter 12, and then 13 to the end is called the Book of Glory. So um, that might be a good place to stop. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, internet, smartphone app, or on Amazon Echo, please know we'll be right back with Father Fred Gatchett in The Devil's Confusion in the Gospels. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Father Fred Gatchett. The Devil's Confusion in the Gospels. Well, but anyway, so again, getting back to our, you know, Gospel of St. John and this, you know, waging of this battle between light and darkness and good and evil and death and life and so on, you know, we see how, again, you know, once it becomes clear in the story that, you know, this light that's come into the darkness is not going to go out, and in fact is getting brighter, um, and it gets brighter by, by two things. Number one, Jesus keeps amping up the game when he starts healing the sick and raising the dead. The darkness does not like that at all because sickness and death is... Those are the tools of Satan. You know that that's his that's his tool back there, and um and so when when Jesus takes that on, and then but also as more and more people start to believe in him, you know then the light gets brighter, and and it's a, they don't like that at all, and so as we go on through the story again we talked about at the beginning of the the program about light and darkness and about how um you know the light means life and truth and fidelity and goodness and all those kind of things and dark means ignorance and sin and disease and betrayal and all that kind of stuff. It's interesting that if you go back to John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes and visits Jesus, it says, you know, there was a man on the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night. Okay, okay why does he come to Jesus at night? Well, night means Nicodemus is ignorant. He's trying to be enlightened. He wants to know more about Jesus, but he's also afraid. You know, fear is another part of the darkness. He's afraid because if the other people on the Sanhedrin knew that he was coming to see Jesus, you know, maybe he might take some heat for that. So he comes to Jesus at night. And um, we're kind of, you know, given this image of, of Nicodemus sitting there, you know, really wanting to know what the truth is, wanting to know what light is, but having to come to Jesus at night. And then in John chapter 13, in the, um, in the, in the Last Supper story in the Gospel of St. John, after Jesus washes the apostles' feet, he, he, he tell, you know, he's telling me, he gives the apostles this speech about, you know, you call me Master and Lord, and that is what I am. If I, your Master and Lord, have washed your feet, so you must wash one another's feet, and so on. And then when they sit down to eat, you know, Jesus says, you know, that, that you know, one of you will betray me. Then, you know, the apostles go back and forth, who is it, who is it? And then, in verse 28, in chapter 13, verse 28, it says, Now, no one at the time knew why Jesus said this to, to Judas. He told Judas, you know, do quickly what you're going to do. Some thought that since Judas held a common purse, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or someone he should go with something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You know, and John just puts that very declarative statement in there, it was night. 
And so Judas goes out, and it was night. It's in the darkness. You know, the betrayal, the treachery, you know, the 30 pieces of silver, you know, all these things that are about to happen. And then that's in chapter 13. Then we go from 14 through 17, and that's where we have the, the, the what's called the Last Supper Discourse. It's five chapters of a big, long speech by Jesus where he teaching, you know, giving the apostles kind of one final speech before he leaves. Then, you know, they, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. There's the trial before the Sanhedrin and so on. But then, whenever there's two things, this one comes from the Synoptic Gospels from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that, you know, there's a point when the, when the high priest comes up and tells Jesus, okay, look, pal, you know, he doesn't exactly use these words, but, you know, they had, um, you know, they had various people coming in and trying to give testimony, but the testimony all conflicted because half of them were lying. And so finally, you know, the, the, the high priest says, you know, get those clowns out of here. He says, look, look, buddy, looking at Jesus. I am demanding you right now, you tell us yes or no, are you or are you not the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am. Well, when he says, I am, he's saying two things. He's saying, yeah, I am. You got it right. That's what I am. But also in using the declarative statement, I am, that's a reference back to I am who am from Moses at the burning bush. And so by saying, I am, Jesus is acknowledging, yes, I am the Messiah, but he's also calling himself God. And it says, at that point, then the high priest tore his garment. What further need have we of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you say? And they found him as liable to death. Well, the thing is, is that the same law that they're accusing Jesus of breaking by calling himself God also said that the high priest may not tear his garments, Okay. And so, you know, why does the high priest tear his garments except that this angry exchange between the light and the dark is reached kind of a crescendo? And in the Gospel of St. John, it's really bad. It, this is in chapter 19. This is after, you know, Pilate's had Jesus, you know, um, flogged and scourged and everything. In chapter 19, verse 13, it says, When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat down on the judge's bench, called in Hebrew the pavement, called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, here is your king. They, they, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? Then the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. For the chief priests to say that, for the religious leadership of the Jews to say, we have no king but Caesar, that just shows that they're just in a, they're in a crazed frenzy. Because any other time, you know, the Jewish people hated Caesar. They hated the Roman occupation. And so, you know, for them to, to if you would have talked to them two weeks before and said, who's your king? They would have said, Yahweh, God's our king. Well, what about Caesar? Well, oh, he's some pretender. We, we don't like him. You know, we're, we're, we're Hebrews. We're Jews. You know, our true king is God. They would say that. But here... You know, the darkness, you know, this is the time, this is, you know, the darkness is our. And, um, and the darkness is, you know, kind of almost reigning supreme in a certain way. And it's even taken possession. I hate to use the word possession because it sounds like, you know, the exorcist or something like that. But it's, it's taken possession of the Jewish leadership. And for them to make this, re- this remarkable statement, we have no king but Caesar, you know, they would have never said that under any other circumstance. And so this, again, this just kind of shows you, in my opinion, this is where, you know, the darkness, you know, this is, this is kind of the, 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 the apex, the crescendo, where the darkness is, you know, really thinks that it's, it's winning the day. is when, you know, when you get the high priest to say, we have no king but Caesar. And then, of course, you know, as Jesus is 
being nailed to the cross and crucified, then, you know, they're thinking, okay, finally we got rid of this problem. But then he rises from the dead, and then, you know, the light, you know, comes into the world in a definitive way, and um, the rest, they say, is history. But um, I'm trying to, I've been sort of writing down an outline. I think I might try to kind of write a little book about this and see if I can't get it published. So that's, that's what I've been up to lately. Well, I know that just a lot of times, you know, folks will be talking about trying to read the Bible. I just had a young teenage Hispanic girl ask me just a couple Sundays ago, you know, I want to start reading the Bible. How do I do that? And um, because a lot of times, you know, people will start, well, I crack you, I'll just start with Genesis 1-1 and, and with Revelation, you know, and just kind of read the whole thing through. The Bible experts say you shouldn't do that. That's what I did. I remember the one time I decided, well, heck, I should just, you know, reading the Bible, just having read it, that would, you know, it's the most influential book ever written. I suppose everybody should read it and know it to some degree. And so um, years ago, I think I was in high school maybe, I just started reading it and plowing through it. It wasn't easy, especially, you know, you have all kinds of names and places that don't make any sense to you, and, and, um, but you kind of get through it, and as you kind of go plow, it's like, oh, dang, that's pretty good little insight there. You, know, you kind of pick up stuff. But, um, but, you know, if someone wants to do an interesting read of the Gospel of St. John, you know, go through the Gospel of St. John looking for these battles between the light and the dark. You know, you know, look, look at it. Look, just watch as as the story progresses, as the gospel progresses. Watch how the battle heats up between the light and the darkness. And um, because if you know, it, it starts off in in chapter one, verse five. You know, the light came into the darkness, and you're going to have to, you know, maybe make a little sticky note or something there. And you know, don't go within the darkness and not overcome it, because that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says the light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness was confused by it. And so then, you know, as we go through, it's like the darkness is kind of going, well, what is, what is this? You know, I understand, I know death, lies, disease, betrayal, you know, treachery. That's, that's what I know. And all of a sudden you've got life, truth, fidelity, goodness. What the heck is this? And, um, and again, you can see how it, at first the, the, the darkness just kind of is confused by it, but kind of writes it off. But as the, as the Gospel of St. John unfolds, it becomes clear that not only is the light not going anywhere, the light is getting brighter, and so the darkness pushes back. And the darkness pushes back big time, for example, in the person of Judas Iscariot. If, you, know, if, you know, Judas goes out, and it was night when he goes out to betray Jesus. Um, it pushes back big time in, in, the, in, the, you know, in the high priest tearing his garments, as we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, also then... When the high priest says, "We have no king but Caesar," I mean that just shows you this crazed frenzy of of the of the darkness, you know, kicking and you know, it, it's like a wild animal caught in a snare, as it's just you know kicking and fighting back against the light. You know, I think it it's kind of interesting if you watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. You know, the devil, you know, that devilish figure, that androgynous figure that's bald and kind of floats around and you know gives you you know kind of gives these evil stares and stuff. It, it almost has sort of a certain smugness about it, thinking, yeah, you know, all we got to do is get this guy killed, and it'll be, we'll be back to business as usual. But then when Jesus breathes his last on the cross, all of a sudden the devil realizes, I've just been beaten. I've been beaten big time. And, you know, that's when that, when that demon figure, you know, just, you know, screams out, you know, at the top of his voice from the bowels of hell. And so, again, I think that... Um, you know, the, you know, the light came into the darkness, and the darkness was confused by it, was confounded by it. 
you know, if, if we if we run with that through the Gospel of St. John, at least for me, it really kind of opened it up to, you know, to really kind of understanding it on a, on a, on a different kind of more profound level. And I would just throw that out to Divine Mercy Radio listeners. It's like, if you want to, you know, enrich your, you know, your understanding, your relationship with the Lord and understanding of the Gospel of St. John, you know, go into it with, um, with that with that perspective and see what happens. Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, internet, smartphone app, or on Amazon Echo, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. If you would like to comment on today's show or have an idea for a future show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. And folks, eternity is not seen. But neither are these airwaves. But if you can support these radio waves and help save souls for eternity, then please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg. And very soon, 105.7 KMDG Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.